You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. I don't blame anyone for this, so I don't want to sound like I'm blaming parents or teachers, whatever. But if I think about what I was doing as a four, five, six year old, it was so clear that I should have been an interior designer. I have a fascination with how the world around me is designed. Everything from the cities I travel to and live in, to the places I work from, and the events I am part of. In itself, design seems to be a good fit for this podcast. As this week's guest mentions, the thing about good design is that we don't usually notice it. It is more likely the poor design is obvious to us. I think having a human and ecology-oriented design mindset can help us all as we go about living, contributing, and creating. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Kate Chalice about the subtle disruption of the design of place. G'day Kate, how are you? Very well, Adam, how are you? I'm good. Do you want to start by talking about what you've chosen for our conversation today? Well, I'm an interior designer, and it's taken me a sort of little path. Of, I've, I've come to this point in my life and career um, in a very sort of interesting, meandering way. Um, but I really want to talk about interiors and environment and how environment actually affects our well-being because um, it's a really important part. We live in this society where we uh, think a lot about, or we hopefully we think a lot about our diets and what we put into our bodies and how we sleep and exercise. And um, I really feel that fundamentally the buildings in which we live and how they're designed actually has a massive impact upon us as individuals. Yeah, and this is a studio that you've actually designed. Yes, that right? that's yeah. correct, yes, yes. Yeah, and so... We're in Fitzroy on Gertrude Street. That's correct. From what I remember, you were here before it was cool. Uh, we, we were here before <laughs> it was cool. In fact, we've, we have a house on Gertrude Street, which is separate from my studio office. And when we first bought it, um, people said, are you crazy? You know, um, it was, there was a lot of... Um, drunken behaviour out on the streets at night time, you know, drug deals that have sort of turned bad with lots of fighting and arguing. So when we first moved into the street, there wasn't even one cafe in Gertrude Street. So it's changed considerably. And in some ways, I do miss the old days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much the hottest street in Melbourne right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'm a bit biased, but it is interesting. I, I, I do like it, but of course, it's always one of the problems. Once things become really hot, um, some of the more interesting, smaller, quirkier places, of course, close down or have to move out of the area because they can't afford the rent anymore, and that's beginning to happen, which really saddens me. Yeah. Okay, so this, so we're actually where we're sitting right now is not your studio necessarily this is your husband's office that's right so yes. you share a space it's like a shared working space that you have that's correct yeah. yes and the contrast between the two spaces is quite stark yes <laughs> <laughs> what, what, have, what have you noticed Adam? uh well this is this feels like an open, well it's interesting that you call yours a studio and this an office so yes. i think that pretty much sums it up for me like yes. this does like it's an awesome office but it does feel a lot more like an office it's open plan um, it's lots of light, high ceilings, and then yours uh, has wallpaper and yes. it has colour. And yeah, well, do you want to talk about the process that you and Andrew went through to, to yes, create this? Certainly. Yeah, certainly. Well, well, we used to live on Gertrude, well, we still do live on Gertrude Street, and our offices were actually in the old shop front um, in, in our house. And uh, when I was pregnant with my son, which was eight years ago, we decided that actually we wanted to move our workspace out of our house because what would end up happening is that we would just find ourselves on the weekends and the evenings just drifting to the office for no particular reason and we thought actually we need to separate the two so we um, rented or have rented an actually it's an apartment just down the road it's two minutes walk three minutes if the traffic lights are out <laughs> and so it's actually far enough away from home to, for, to create the distance between the two but close enough for um, us to be able to get to work and from work quite quickly um, and so we moved into this sort of apartment and um, it sort of just slowly evolved I think all good design 
evolves over a period of time. And so Andrew's, he's a consultant and he's a solo consultant. So he has got a very big plan. Um, as you said, white walls, high ceilings, um, beautiful bookshelves, artwork on the walls. He he really loves sort of quiet and more minimalist with a little bit of texture and colour and interest that inspires him in his work. He loves being surrounded by books as well. So I very much designed the space around his needs and what actually is going to enable him to be the most productive and inspired at work. Um, where I, my personal, I like things a little bit more atmospheric and um, maybe a little bit more, I don't want to use the word dark, but <laughs> <laughs> a bit more moody maybe. So I have you know lots of amazing wallpaper and um, beautiful lights and um, my desk is actually a um, a, a desk I found, a table I found on eBay for $95 and had it restored. So, um, and it very much reflects who I am. And that's really important when my clients come to see me that they can actually see, you know, what I really love. Yeah. It's, they are two, as you say, very contrasting spaces and really cool spaces as well. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Like, I think you're the first designer that I've actually spoken to on the podcast. Oh, I'm very honoured. Yeah. <laughs> I... I think design something that I've just like. I love design. Like, mm-hmm. and I I did a I did an IT degree, but then I did an, uh, a degree in social science. And one of the subjects I did was around urban design, and I just I loved it. And I had to pick an urban place and redesign it. And and now I can't stop thinking about the design of things. It's it's just I can't read help redesign urban places when I walk through them. Yeah. Do you feel like that about design? Oh, totally, totally. I I think that you know. Good design should in some ways not be noticeable. It should be so... It can have that wow factor, which is, of course, lovely. But really good design actually focuses on human beings and it has human beings at the centre. And I just sort of think to myself about our day-to-day lives that good design should enable and facilitate us and our lifestyle and also inspire us. So it's that old question of... You know, if you think about in your home or in your workspace, is it designed in a way that you actually aren't spending time on those irritating things? You know, you shouldn't be spending energy um, throwing a piece of paper in the recycling bin. You know, it should be designed in a way where it's a seamless flow. So you're not actually spending time on things which are just energy suckers, I suppose, in your life. Um, So... That's one really important aspect of design. A lot of people, when they hear that I'm an interior designer, they say, oh, that's kind of fun. And, oh, that must be really beautiful. And it is, but that's almost like the icing on the cake. You know, that's the the beautifying of of spaces is is probably only 5 to 10% of my work. A lot of my work is around planning. It's around understanding... Um, the individual and what their lifestyles are like and th- their needs. So if I'm designing a space for, you know, a bachelor who's got, you know, one bedroom apartment in Elwood and entertains at home a lot, that will be very different from designing a space for um, a family with two children who um, live in a very big house and maybe don't entertain. So you have to really think about... Um, your own, your clients or your own lifestyle in terms of making sure that it really, as I said, you know, inspires and, um, and also facilitates who you are yeah. and who you want to be, you know, like, mm. yeah. Um, so I find it really sad when I, you know, in Australia, we've got this, um, love for downlights and I hate downlights, you know, they're really practical, but you know, whenever I go into a space and I just see, you know, it's flooded with downlights, I feel kind of sad because I think there's this missed opportunity to create this lighting, ambient lighting, which actually um, sort of is, is a mood creating. Yeah, like uplights. That's like uplights and pendant lights. And, um, and, and I think it's one of the reasons I'm so sort of um, interested in this is because I actually didn't, I was never trained as an interior designer. Right. Yeah, I... Um, uh, I actually have an art history background, oh. and so I've come. I've come to this quite sort of late in my life, um, yeah. and I've come to it from a sort of point of view of recognizing that the type of design I really love wasn't really out there. Yeah, cool. All right, let's come back to your journey yeah. in a second from art history to yeah. design. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is about just that process of 
say you were talking about, you know, you've got to tailor the design to the individual or the group and what their needs are. Do you spend a lot of time just hanging out with them, observing them, or are you bringing a whole lot of just stereotypes? So this is a family and this is what I need to bring to it. Like, how, what is your process for creating that? Oh, it's a really interesting question. It's, um, you know, a fam- no family is the same. You can have, you know, every family composition is different and the needs of every family is different. There's never a sort of template of, if I have a client who's like, you know, two parents, two children, that actually doesn't necessarily reveal much. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time um, initially just meeting with my clients, um, meeting them at their homes, um, or even if it's not the home that I'm designing, if it's something that they're building, I still want to go to their home that they're living in at the moment. And I have lots of questions for them around, you know, what do you love about your current house? What do you hate about it? What really annoys you? Um, you know, tell me about when your home is finished how will it look and how will it feel and how will it smell and what will you be doing there describe a day for me describe um, a morning for me during the week describe describe a weekend for me Um, so I really try and have a get a sense of how the personal people are currently living and how they would really love to live Um, because that's what's going to help me help them make really good choices and um, I love that process you know um, of of and then also making sure that I help my clients to stay on that track because sometimes you'll see something that you think oh my gosh that's awesome and it is a really amazing piece but doesn't really necessarily fit into the big picture life that they're trying to create for themselves and I think that's the difference between I think um Doing it yourself, often clients will just buy or in, buy individual pieces without thinking about it as an integrated whole. Where I think a designer actually tries to, or if you if you're good at what you do, you you look at the whole design. You want to get a whole sense of the, the complete picture. Um, so I even will say to someone, so walk me through when you walk in the front door, what will you be carrying, and where does that go? Mm. Like, where do you put, where do you charge your phones? Where do you, you've got your handbag and your kid's school bag and your lunchbox and where do all these things go? So, in fact, you don't do that thing of just dumping it all on the corner and then everyone falling over it, you know, on the way to (laughs) to wherever. Yeah. And I guess designing a way, like, maybe... I don't know how you do this, but I'm just thinking, you know, people, when they when places were first designed, they didn't always have places to charge. They didn't need to charge their phones. But then how do you, you know, what? how are you anticipating what their future needs are going to be yeah. as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. And, um, and, yeah, so it's also about this thing about talking about, so family is a good example of not just talking about your current needs, um, but also when your children are... 10 years older than they currently are mm-hmm. and if you're going to still be in this space how can we design the space to make sure that it's going to work for a teenage two teenage boys mm-hmm. um, as opposed to two six or four or five year old boys yeah. very very different design dilemmas but good design should have longevity to it um, I mean I always think about this with my grandparents my um, my grandparents they um they bought art and you know, my grandfather was an art historian mm. and um, they had these pieces of furniture that they had made when they were first married and it was a um, beautiful um, oak sideboard, a dining room table and a bed and it was made by a local craftsperson who they knew and it um, they had this for the, their entire lives and um, my uncle was born on the bed and my um, you know when my grandparents died those pieces were still in their house and I just thought there's something really beautiful about having pieces like objects like that for your entire life rather than buying things that fall apart within four or five years time yeah. and then ditching them only to buy them buy something else that doesn't have much longevity to it either yeah mm. Yeah, I love that story as well. Um, perhaps then that leads into how can you describe the favorite, your, your favorite transformation or the favorite place you have designed up until this point? Like, what's something that you've, you know, some of those principles that you were talking about at the start about, 
um, you know, the environment and the, and the impact it has on the way we live. What's been your, um, yeah, your, your favourite piece? Oh, that's so hard to, to... That's a really hard question to answer. It's like asking a parent, you know, who your favourite yeah, child sure. is. You know, like every single project you love for different, yeah. different reasons. Um, I think one of the projects I've really had fun with was, was an apartment I designed for um, a single guy um, in his sort of mid to late 30s um, bachelor pad. And he was just a joy as a client, um, just fun to be around, and we got on very well. Um, and his apartment went from being something that he was embarrassed to have people over um, because it was, it, it, there was just stuff everywhere. And so we had to go through a big process of culling, of course. And, um, and that apartment went from being, you know, a real eyesore sort of in Elwood, beautiful part of Elwood, but 19 sort of late, probably no, early 70s apartment. And he has his fascination for New York and um, he's a disability support worker, um, loves New York, goes to New York once a year, um, stays at the Ace Hotel in New York uh, for four weeks and just enjoys himself. And um, so he said to me, Kate, my brief to you is to create an Ace Hotel for me at home. Yeah. And um, it was it was so much fun. So we knocked out walls. We op- opened up the kitchen and dining um, living area. And he has gone from have, being embarrassed to have people over to loving people coming and entertaining because everyone is so amazed and wowed by by the space. And he's just um, yeah. And it, the space is really amazing. It really reflects. It's not what I would do if it was my apartment, um, but it is totally right for Sam. You know, it's sharp and it's masculine and it's um, it's quirky and uh, it and is like a, and he calls it the Ace Hotel in Elwood. You yeah. know, um, so I'm really proud of that. And you know, that was a, a project I did two years ago. And he loves it as much as the day as he moved in. And um, that was a fantastic project, yeah. yeah. Really transformative, you know. It's like the before and after photographs are just... People often don't believe it's the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> well, yeah, take us back then to art history and what, what you were doing then. I guess, was that straight after school that you got into art history? Well, I sort of, you know, my... My path to where I am now, to me, seems like a sort of windy one, but I can see there is a logical progression. Yeah. But for some people, would think, oh, one moment she's doing this, the next moment she's doing that. Um, so I um, went to a sort of very academic school um, and uh, was a very obedient, obliging student um, and um, studied really hard and got really good marks and um, and even though I was very, very creative even back then, there was this idea that, you know, if you're academically strong and as a woman especially, you should be doing something like law or medicine or commerce and so even though I spent all of my time kind of designing things and making things I felt this sort of obligation to you know go off to university and I started actually studying a commerce law double commerce law degree right. and looking at your face you can see how you know uncongruent that is for me um and I hated it I went from being like you know a really good student to essentially just dropping like doing really really badly and I knew on my first day of uni, I just looked around and I thought, oh, this is not the, con- these people are not my, it's not my tribe, you know, it's not the context I want to be in. Um, but I sort of continued and I suppose not surprisingly, ended up actually going through this very, very um, dark bout of depression because I was so sort of driven and motivated and then all of a sudden I found myself studying something which was considered to be very prestigious and I felt that that's what I needed to do to be, in inverted commas, successful in life. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't me. And um, I went through sort of quite a sort of, in my early 20s, quite a sort of dark time, not really knowing what I should be doing or where I should be going. And ended up dropping out of 
commerce and law and study pure art and really enjoyed that you know I did sort of history and languages and art history and um, my grandfather was an art historian and um, we were actually pretty very very close and um, it was just I ended up just doing the subjects that I really enjoyed and not worrying about where that was going to lead me or what I was going to do professionally and just just enjoy studying like just Mm. (laughs) enjoy reading and enjoy learning and enjoy being around like-minded people who are questioning life and interested in culture and history and art and um surprise surprise I did quite well because I was doing something I enjoyed and was offered a scholarship to um, do my master's and PhD. And again, I just thought to myself, yeah, actually, why not? I'll do this. I don't know where it's going to lead me. I don't really care. I'm just going to do this. And so I ended up um, completing a PhD in art history in, it's very obscure, as all PhD topics should be, in (laughs) Early Renaissance, so early 16th century illuminated manuscripts. So these are books that have got paintings in them, essentially. And it meant that I, these books were sort of luxury objects and they spread all over the world. So I had to go to, you know, the Getty in LA, <laughs> I got to go to New York, to Venice, Rome. Um, all paid for as part of the PhD? Well, yes, <laughs> but on sort of... I had a scholarship for the travel, but I also had to work, so it wasn't like you know a cushy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but I had, I had some money, but I had to work in order to um, um, sort of uh, spend on um, pay for the travel. Yeah. Um, and of, of course, the travel and the accommodation was pretty basic. I remember in Venice, for example, um, staying at a convent um, where I could stay for the five dollars a night, and um, and there were like it was. I always felt like I was at a um, you know, I was on a movie set for Annie because there were like, you know, 50 women or young women lined up in a dorm with little beds and um, the nuns would turn off the lights at nine o'clock. Um, and that was, you know, that was travelling as a student. But, you know, I think back on those days and I think about them in quite sort of, uh, you know, romantic ways now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's what you do in order to make your money stretch. And um, so, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I travelled and I um, and I studied and, you know, it was hard. It was a really hard slog um, because a PhD is, you're very isolated and it's very much something that, you know, you're doing by yourself. And um, But it gave me a lot of um, discipline in terms of, uh, I realise now, running my own business, that a lot of the skills that you need to run a business, I sort of learnt when I was actually doing my thesis. And um, I knew, even when I was studying, that as much as I enjoyed that period of my life, I knew that I wasn't going to be an academic. It wasn't the thing for me. And at that time, I started actually doing yoga. And, um, and wherever I travelled, I would always go and do a yoga class if I was in New York or in London or wherever. And I realised, this is sort of in the, in the mid-90s, that at that time there were no really beautiful yoga studios in Melbourne. There are lots now. Um, but at the time, yoga in Melbourne was a very sort of esoteric, um, highly specialised... Uh, uh, discipline and the yoga studios were all about the guru and often in you know fairly dodgy environments and so I had this sort of dream in the last sort of year or so of my PhD that once I finished my uh, studies that I would open up a yoga studio um, and that's what sort of what kept me going and I eventually did that Shay um, I opened up a yoga studio in in the CBD in Melbourne which is still which is still um, doing, doing very, very well. It's called Breathe Yoga and Pilates. Yeah. And I went into business with um, a number of other people and um, did that for just a couple of years and then um, decided that uh, th- there were too many, too many uh, cooks in the kitchen. You know, there were <laughs> yeah. too many business owners and yeah. we just needed to simplify and my partners made me an offer and I sold out to them. And, um, but it was a great thing to do. And uh, it was around at that time that I uh, I found myself at this point where I just thought, what am I going to do with my life now? And I studied and PhD and opened up a business and 
um, became pregnant and thought, actually, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm actually just going to not achieve anything. I'm just going to allow myself to enjoy my pregnancy um, and um, just focus on this one thing rather than trying to do too many things all the time. So when Jasper was born, um, I never thought I'd ever be a stay-at-home mum. I sort of had bought into that rhetoric of if you're an intelligent woman, then being at home with a child is mind-numbing. And for some women, I understand that's the case and I'm really respectful of that. But for me, I really loved it. I really loved actually not not pushing myself. You know, actually looking after a newborn, if anyone who's done that, that's actually a huge task in yeah. and of itself. Yeah. And um, it was during that time that I um, I did decide I wanted to do something for myself that was not to do with my son or domesticity. And I started blogging, and I started blogging about interiors. Right. And I always, because I'd always loved interiors, mm. and um, my intention wasn't to do it for any other purpose except to give myself a creative outlet. And... Um, I started getting a readership and an audience, which I wasn't expecting. And then my own house, which I had published on my blog, it got picked up by some really big design blogs, um, like Design Smudge and Apartment Therapy. Yeah, right. And then people started contacting me saying, oh, I love your work. Would you would you design my house? And I was originally, no, no, I'm not an interior designer. I just, <laughs> I just like talking about it. And then a couple of major print magazines also published the house um, both in, so it was published in Australia as well as some international magazines and people kept on coming to me and I kept on saying no 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 and then I thought mm, why not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a different another story about what happened then but that's how I sort of that's the long story of um, of you know how I've ended up where I am yeah we should get to the next bit of that story, but there's a few things I wanted to pick up on on the first part. I think you're like a world export, expert in a particular illuminated text, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes, yes. Which, what is that? Tell so us about that. So it's a, a book that is, it's actually a really interesting book. I think it's interesting. Um, it's called the Rothschild Prayer Book. So it's a, a prayer book that was made in the early 16th century. We don't know for whom. Um, I first saw it when it was still in the... National Library in Vienna and um, this was in the early 90s when I was still an undergraduate and um, it was actually um, Nazi loot so the Nazis had um, taken it from the Rothschild banking family in Vienna um, and it was handed and it was in the National Library um, until 1999 it was handed back to the family um, and sold on at auction, um, sold off to someone, cutting a very long story short, it was re-auctioned a couple of years ago and the Australian billionaire, Kerry Stokes, bought it. Oh, wow. So the manuscript's now in Perth and um, it's really quite funny because at the time when I was studying this manuscript, there's no way I ever thought that it would end up in Australia, but here it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to talk about that sometimes. Yeah, it? I yeah. get to talk about that, which I love. I still have my finger a little bit in, in the art history. Yeah. Um, I still really love it. I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's always going to be part of me. And it very much also influences my, my style and my design as well. Um, mm. It's very... Uh, if you have a look at the wallpapers in, in this in in this in my studio, um, it's one of the wallpapers. Is this amazing Fornasetti wallpaper? It's a bit um, Roman. It's Rome. It's a compilation of Roman buildings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's yeah let's talk about your influences because that's. I mean, it's pretty interesting that you didn't have an interior design background, but you obviously designed your own place, mm-hmm. um, and you thought that you were capable of doing that and you believed in yourself and you did it and you created something that people liked and was really cool like how like, yeah where did that design impulse come from and yeah what, what why did you create what you created that's such a great question I don't know if I can answer it I, I just know that I was always interested in design and environment um I grew up oh, from the ages of six to twelve I lived in Germany um my my father was 
um, had to move over there for work. And we lived in this house, and it was a really big house, and they had in, in, in there was a big attic, and my brother and I had our bedrooms in the attic. And the attic wasn't like a beautiful attic, like it was all the insulation was raw on the ceiling. So, and I had this massive room, and my parents had all of that, you know, that spare furniture that you don't use was yeah. in my room, yeah. which sort of sounds like some people's nightmare, but for me it was fantastic because I spent, this is when I was like eight and nine and 10, 11, I spent my childhood creating environments in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. So I was always like moving furniture around and, you know, painting walls and doing, I was just constantly creating environments and I don't know why. It's obviously something that I have been, maybe just something I was born with. Yeah. Um, I'm a Cancer as a star sign, which is like the crab. So some people say it's got to do with that, that, you know, they like to build little nests for themselves. Yeah. Um, it's just something that I... I think also possibly because we moved a lot as a child. You know, my... Um, I moved a lot during my childhood. And so I was always constantly trying to create some kind of environment for myself that I felt mm. was home. Mm. Um, but I don't, I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, it's just something I've always been drawn to. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a good answer. I mean, especially contrasting it with your experience of doing the law commerce double degree, right? And yeah. the, um, how it just felt so incongruent with you and mm. you got depressed. And then the way you've come into design, you, um, you, almost, you haven't had even study it. Like, it's just been this natural extension of you, if you like. Yeah. 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 It, it's, um, I think it's one of those things where I haven't studied it, I haven't studied it formally, but yeah. I've been interested in it all my sure. life. Yeah. Um, and so, and I actually, when I decided to start my business, I had a moment where I thought, oh, do I need to go back and actually qualify? Do I need to go off and do a, a course in interior design? And... I decided that that was not the best use of my time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, Just thinking about my own, I I had a similar experience in my early 20s when I first hit the workforce. Mm. I studied IT and then went into a consulting company and just, I had depression for about four years, Mm. feeling stuck and Mm. just, yeah, the the incongruence that word again with me was... um, was stark so I really yeah I empathize mm. what you were going through mm. then in that period of time too and then yeah learning learning just because uh because of curiosity and interest and just feeling free to follow that I don't think I've really given my permission just to do that for the last until the last few years oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah so I, yeah I, I don't know I'm just we've both got kids at school so it's yeah. interesting to think about the way people do learn and what you should learn as opposed to um, following your curiosity and then seeing where that leads you. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, the thing that I find, and I don't blame anyone for this, so I don't want to sound like I'm blaming parents or teachers or whatever, but if I think about what I was doing as a four, five, six-year-old, it was so clear that I should have been an interior designer. So, so clear. And I got caught up with society's expectations you know my parents expectations not from a bad point of view they were their expectations around what they felt was going to be best for me and what was going to be best for me was to you know get the best marks get into the best possible course and then find the best possible um, profession Um, and my teachers at the time were sort of saying the same thing but if you I didn't have anyone in my life at that time who actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, actually, Kate, you know, where are you spending your time? You know, when, when you don't have to do things that are obligations, what makes you happy? And as I said, I'm not blaming anyone. I think most of us have gone that discovery, you know, that in fact we all want to have that little, that wise uncle or aunt who taps us on the shoulder but very few of us do Um, and we sort of hopefully discover that for ourselves and but I do feel like I've come full circle you know that um, that it's taken me a while to say to give myself permission to do the thing that I 
really mm. love doing. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you follow the, the things like the metamyth of uh, the hero's journey and that kind of thing, Joseph Campbell stuff, yes. it's almost like we have to go through that arc to get to that point. Like it's almost that point of disillusion and then finding mentors along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're a bit later than yeah. we'd like them. It's an important part. So we know we have those dark moments, those cave moments, and then find the strength to break out and, and be ourselves. You're so right. You know, I, I really love that because it's like, you know, it's that old question. If someone had tapped me on the shoulder, would I have listened? Yeah. Probably not. You know, that in a way, it's what you're saying. Maybe you have to go through all of that to then come back to where you start, but sort of value it and actually rather than just dismissing it. Yeah. 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 Well, let's go point back to that point now where, um, so your apartment that you've designed or your house that you've designed mm. has got published and people are starting to come to you and yes. you're like, I'm not an interior designer. And you're saying, well, maybe I am. Maybe you know, I, am. I am. Yeah. yeah. What happened? Well, um, I, I got to that point where my son was a little bit older and he was, you know, at kindergarten and, and I sort of thought, yeah, what am I going to do with my life now? Um, I always knew that I'd be a, end up being a working mother. I couldn't see myself just being someone who, um, especially once my child was at school, to be a full-time mum, especially with a single child. And so I, I've always been interested in business. And um, I, at, that, at that point, um, my husband actually had a business mentor um, who um, is an American guy who's uh, quite a provocative uh, business mentor. And I was just talking to him one day and just out of uh, fun said to him, I said, oh, well, if I knew what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would actually um, sign up to your mentoring program as well. And it was just a throwaway line. And he looked at me, Alan looked at me and he said, well, Kate, maybe you should so we can figure it out. And he was really, really, really important of taking me from the process of, from a process of having this idea of maybe things that I'd like to do to actually establishing a business. And his um, advice, which was invaluable, was go out and find yourself four pro pro bono projects. Uh, friends, acquaintances, um, and give it a go. Be really um, transparent about the fact that you're not interior designer. You're doing this as a uh, as an experiment, um, and see if you can find four people who are willing to, you know, give you a project, and just see how it goes. So I spoke to some friends and people I knew, and ended up with six pro bono projects that's sort of typical of me start before and And, um a couple of them were were friends and one of them was actually my hairdresser who at the time wanted to she had three hairdressing salons and she said actually Kate would you help me redesign my hairdressing salon and I thought well that's a great opportunity and so I started immediately working um so it was one of those great things that rather than spending massive amounts of time doing business plans and mission statements and budgeting and you know organizing my website and business cards which is usually what people do when they start business I didn't have any of that stuff I just actually started working as an interior designer and it gave me a huge amount of confidence because I was when I was speaking to suppliers I could say to them oh this project I'm working on so it already got me into the mindset of being the designer as opposed to um, in the future maybe I will become an interior designer. Yeah. And um, yeah, I did these six pro, pro bono uh, projects, loved doing them. Um, my clients were really happy. Um, I had some projects I could then photograph, so I had some portfolio. So it was the most fantastic advice anyone gave me. And it's something that I often tell people when they say to me, oh, I want to do start a business in X, what shall I do? I'm just like, just go out and do it. Don't yeah. think about it. Don't agonise over it. Um, you know, in comparison to the yoga studio where we spent like two years planning for it and then starting too big, like we then ended up getting this massive site right in this really prestigious location and all of a sudden it was bigger than Ben-Hur before we even really had know what we're doing just starting really small and just starting from a position of curiosity and and intrigue and and discovering is just a really important way i think of 
um, attitude for life, but also attitude for starting a new business. Um, and so that's how it started, and it's just yeah. sort of gone from there. Yeah, yeah. it's so cool. Uh, that learning through doing, I think, is a big lesson for me yeah. over the past little while as well. Like, yeah, and also um, what we've talked about earlier, just having that something that comes from within you, like that just seems so right for you. I think if 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 what you're doing comes from an authentic place, and then you start learning through doing. Um, the business plan and all that kind of stuff is still important, but yes. it's not as important because you'll just find a way. I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. I think the thing about business plans is that it's all guessing anyway. Yeah. You know, like mm. even when I think to myself, we spent such a long time with the yoga business um, estimating revenues. It was all just guesswork. You know, it was not based on... It was based on our... <laughs> our ideal and then worst case scenario but it was all just guessing yeah. you know and I think that 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 when you're starting off a business I think it's really important to have the agility of discovering and evolving the business and I think that sometimes with business plans you've got this idea that you've set out before you've actually given yourself the learning opportunity you know mm. um, <laughs> so I'm not sort of I understand that business plans have got their place at a certain time in business, but I think often with a startup, you just have to start up, you know, and give yourself permission to make mistakes and learn. And I think otherwise, one is too focused on imposing the plan on your clients as opposed to saying, well, my job as a as an interior designer, or, or it's really the job of anyone who's in a service um, uh, industry is actually focusing on what are my clients' needs? Yeah. You know, how can I best serve my clients? You know, how mm. can I be of value to them? So rather than, it's not about me selling my product of service to someone, it's about, well, how can I help you? How can I help yeah. you have an environment, a workplace or a home that you really love? How can I enable you? Uh, so it's a very different, I think, position. Yeah, it's like having a plan but not being attached to the plan based on the information and the openness that you have about who you're dealing with. Yeah. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, even um, I think that's sort of fundamentally also who I am. Oh, I try, who I try to be as a person and I try and bring that into my meetings with my clients as well. So one thing that people often say to me is, okay, oh, you don't have one style. You know, a lot of interior designers are known for a particular style. And I think that's the biggest compliment because I think actually my job is to help my clients evolve their sense of style mm. and help them do the best possible design for what they love as yeah. opposed to me saying, this is the path that you need to go down. Yeah. You know, I heard with horror one of my clients saying to me that a friend of hers who's um, interior designer um, had decided that the house all has to be black and white and wouldn't allow the client to buy a particular piece that they loved. And I just think to myself, oh, that's not your job. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. So I really love the fact that none of my, all of my projects are quite different. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Um, I got a, there's a question I want to ask before my two last questions. Sure. And it's sure. actually about Melbourne. Yes. And just from a designer's point of view, you know, what do you love about this city? Like, what stands out to you about, you know, the good things about it? Maybe not the not so good things about it from a yeah, design point of view and a living point of view. Oh, look, I, I love, I mean, I love travelling, but I love, I love Melbourne. And I think one of the things that is so impressive about this city is the amount of artisans and craftspeople and creative people in this town it's extraordinary and it used to not be the case 15 years ago but we have got remarkable lighting designers like Christopher Boots and Volker Haag and um, Paul Slimbar they are all locally made lights and designed lights and they're furniture makers and wallpaper manufacturers and rug makers and and these are people who are not just importing things from overseas but actually designing and manufacturing here in the city yeah. and I find that is so exciting um, in a way we've sort of it's I think it's almost a, um, it's the opposite to the consumer rapid consumer culture of IKEA 
that you've got, we live in the city where you can go to Ikea, but you can also go and buy these beautifully made, manufactured, manufactured bespoke pieces in Fitzroy as well. I think that's really amazing. Yeah. And I find it very inspiring. I love, I love working with local artisans and um, really try and support them as much as I can and encourage my clients to think about local design as opposed to buying, you know, we often think good design is Italian, German, you know, French. And that's certainly the case, but we've also got amazing people here. Yeah. So there's two questions I've got for you as we start to wrap up now. The first one's about something you daydream about disrupting one day. Uh, you might not be doing it right now, or you might be dabbling in it, but something outside of design perhaps that uh, yeah, you'd like to be part of disrupting. Yeah, I think I've really come to a realisation that I want to disrupt blandness in people's lives. You know, yeah. I think we just sort of settle for things just because it's just the way we are the, the context in which we've we're in and we think we've got to settle for something and I just think to myself you know life is short and um it is about embracing opportunities and sort of living a you know I don't want to sound too Oprah Winfrey but sort of living our best lives you know being really clear about what drives us as an, as an individual or individuals and, and, what, and what inspires us. And so I'm in my business now focusing more and more on um, f- trying to inspire people to sort of shake away mediocrity in their living spaces and their workspaces. And even if you're renting, you know, there are things that you can do to actually make your house and your environment somewhere that you just love spending time that enables you to dream enables you to be who you want to be and live the kind of life you want to live so i'm really interested in sort of being part of that sort of little shaking up and revolution of of people's home environments do you i mean what what are some of the things that represent mediocrity to you in that context i think it's just sameness it's about everything looking the same in terms of design and I think at the moment you know we are very much in this sort of design-led culture which I think is on one hand really lovely on the other hand you know so many cafes in Melbourne they all look the same you know that's got the blonde wood and the subway tiles and the industrial light fittings and that's lovely but it's like oh let's do something that is kind of unique and that reflects individual personality so it's about having colours on your wall that are make you happy you know it's not about whether they are worthy for a magazine or whether even an interior designer in inverted commas likes it it's about what inspires you as a human being and um i'd like to see more diversity in design that really reflects us as individuals so yeah i want to be able to go into someone's space and get a sense of who they are as as a person yeah i like that too and it's uh, I totally there is a there is a Melbourne cafe look mm. like you've just described and if sometimes it I think probably it's safe you know you're going to get in broadsheet I guess if you look like that you yeah know, the, yeah and yeah I think safety is like it's almost like the death of good design like people make a lot of bad design decisions because they fear um, what they fear oh my gosh if I buy this what happens if I'm going to hate it in two years time but usually if you buy something you love, yeah. you won't hate it. Yeah. Usually the, the decisions that one regrets are usually the decisions you make out of fear and out of safety as opposed to out of passion. Yeah. And that, that expression of personality and, and who you are and a place that's, particularly when you're thinking about your home, like a place that's good for you, it doesn't, it's not about everybody else really. No one else is spending that much time in it. That's exactly it, you know. So it's, it's that thing that I say is, you know, what what do you what do you see when you what's the first thing you see in the morning when you wake up what's the last thing you see when you, at night before you go to sleep yeah. where do you spend most of your time in your space and does it make you happy and um, and there are so many you know, we live in this world where there are lots of amazing things that one can do there's lots of advice online things that have to be expensive they can be they can be um, very they can be inexpensive but. If they are uniquely reflect your personality and your interests, they will be really unique. And that's what I love about really good design. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then the last question here is about yourself and about a subtle or small change that you've made in your own life that's helped you along this path or yeah, had, a, had an important impact on your own life. 
Well, I think it's, I suppose it's, um, right now, I've just, this week, which I'm very excited about, I've been introduced to bullet journaling. Bullet journaling? Oh my gosh, Adam, it is amazing. So this has actually quite transformed um, my whole way in which I multitask and I create and I schedule and I plan. So that's been... I feel like it's something really, really small, and it's kind of subtle, but I feel like it's actually a bit like the tsunami effect for me. Um, It's in a positive way. Um, And I think apart from that, I just... um, I am just constantly trying to remember to be mindful of of the here and now and and taking time to have conversations like this, you know, um, with people who who I find inspiring and people who think about the world in a sort of a mindful and soulful way. I think we spend so much of our lives rushing through. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way to finish, but I can't just leave it there. You have to tell us about bullet journaling. Oh, bullet journaling. <laughs> so it's a Google it. There are lots of videos out there on it. It's, a, it's an analogue system. Um, and all you need is a notebook and a pen and a ruler. And when you first look at it, it looks a bit complicated, but it's actually quite a simple system. It's a way that the philosophy behind bullet journaling is that, I know in my mind, I have got so much stuff I'm constantly keeping track of, and I've got a diary, and I've got post-it notes, and I've got little pieces of paper, scraps of paper where I'm writing shopping lists and all of these things. And I've got files saved on my computer. And the idea of a bullet journal is that everything's contained in the one space. So ideas for future travel, um, ideas for client projects. um, And the bullet journal has this particular system that's been devised that enables you to very easily track everything, um, track your activities, Um, and basically be able to do brain dumps. And so it's quite liberating because I'm finding that I'm realising how much stuff is in my head just like constantly and all of that activity in my brain kind of doesn't give me enough space to actually be in the moment or enough space just to walk down the street and just observe what's around me. And I've realised that I just want to do I want more of that in my life I want some more um, just mental like downloading all the files that are in my brain and create some more space for myself yeah very good well yeah it has been awesome to sit here and take the time to have a soulful conversation with you so thanks for sharing about design and about your life and letting us sit in this awesome space thanks Adam hey thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.